You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. There you'll find episode guides, as well as additional reading, more exclusive content, tons of great stuff. And never miss an update, an album review, interview, etc. by subscribing to the free newsletter, howtostand.substack.com. You could also become a paying subscriber on Substack, and that means you're supporting an independent creator and become part of a community, howtostand.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hello everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop in a very special series of episodes. All week long, I will be diving into a ton of movie references in K-pop songs and music videos. Movies that have inspired K-pop stars or are rumored to have inspired them. All things the K-pop cinema connection. Without further ado, let's dive right into it. A listener note for today's episode. Some of the titles I am talking about are quite graphic. There will be a few mentions of exceptionally heinous violence, gore. I will do my best to limit those, but did want to give you a heads up. This is a PG-13 episode. The first movie we're going to talk about today, Old Boy. A South Korean action thriller loosely inspired by the Old Boy manga from 2003. And it's part of what's called a Vengeance Trilogy, with Mr. Vengeance and Lady Vengeance being the other chapters. There's some debate among film buffs about what to call it genre-wise, but largely it seems that the consensus is it's one of the best neo-noir films ever. Viewed as a new take on a revenge story, and it takes place in 1988, when this businessman, Odesu, is trapped in a hotel room for 15 years and he's not told why he's trapped. No one tells him why he's imprisoned. They slide food under the door. He has no idea what's going on. No one will open the door or talk to him, and he grows old for years on end, not being told why he's being kept there. As if that wasn't miserable enough, he finds out from watching TV in there that his wife died. He also ends up finding out his daughter has been adopted. His whole life was taken away. And he doesn't know why, because it's not necessarily because he's a murder suspect. That was on the news when he was already in custody. Why he was taken in in the first place is unrelated, and if he can figure out why, he could be spared being killed himself by the guy who did it. So he's given just a few days, and if he can't figure out by then the reason behind why he was trapped and imprisoned, he's dead. There's this romantic subplot where he is just such a piece of work, tries to really make moves on this girl Midu who does not want him to do that, and she has a knife, she fends him off, it's really intense. But yeah, this guy is not the character that it's easiest to have sympathy for, to say the least. Anyway, so he makes his new mission finding out who did this to him. And when he finds out, that's when he's tasked with, okay, now find out why or you're dead. It turns out this prison hotel is like a service, like a for-profit service where people can pay to have anyone they want sent there and locked up. So someone paid and sent him there for talking too much. The guy behind this is a wealthy guy, Lee Woojin. Trigger warning for very gross, disturbing behavior from this creepy dude. So this wealthy guy, Woojin, is revealed to have committed incest back in high school. He cuts off a guard's hand to ensure the guard stays on his side. It's really intense. And the big reveal ends up being that Daesu's love interest, Mido, is his daughter. 
in Wujin designed this whole mystery so he would fall in love with her, then feel the same crushed realization that he did back in their high school days. Daesu wants penance and so he literally cuts off his tongue, which Wujin allows, and in exchange for literally doing that, he's going to tell the guards to not tell me do about this. Then there's a scene that's really, really something that I don't really want to go into, but I'll just say there's a prank. Wujin has this remote and claims it's for his pacemaker, leaves the remote, walks away, and Daesu thinks it's probably actually like a bomb or something. He's gonna, he thinks he's pulling one on him. Turns out, Wujin was lying. Instead, it's a remote for a loudspeaker. And I don't even want to say what was playing on the loudspeaker. I think I've alluded to enough. Daesu eventually goes to this hypnotist to try to erase his memory of knowing Midu is his daughter, so they can live happily ever after. It's left kind of up to the audience to interpret if he actually did forget, if the hypnotist actually worked, or if he even visited her at all. Because it kind of looked like he'd woken up from a daydream or something, just wishing he could forget that it's not possible. But the movie ends with a hug, Midu saying she loves him, then he smiles, and the smile slowly turns into pain. Yeah, there's a lot there that's like, what the heck? And Odesu was intentionally named, kind of similar to Oedipus, it's kind of alluding to that story. And there's this famous image during this movie of this yoga pose, meant to bring to mind the image of Apollo. The cutting off his tongue scene kind of alludes back to that mythology story as well, with Oedipus gouging his eyes out. I guess you could say the takeaway was facing ugly truths, or not wanting to, ignorance is bliss. I don't know, it's a really messed up movie, do not recommend. But there is an interesting twist to the corridor scene. There's this fight scene in a long corridor. It's a one-take shot that took three days to film, actually, and you CGI just for the knife stabbing. Everything else was just not CGI, just actually happening. That's where the tie-in to K-pop is, because IU has a similar train corridor scene in her video for Lila. Yeah, I bet you weren't expecting that one. But instead of the gritty, dark, intense scene in Old Boy with a lot of weapons, stabbing and stuff, IU just does martial arts. Zero weapons, just her hands, to move from one bad guy to the next, and they drop like flies. And then, in the other train corridors and other sections of the train, she just wins over everyone with charm and kindness, and it's light and fluffy and fun and pastel and a party. Very loose source of inspiration, obviously, but interesting nonetheless. Next up, just going to talk a little about some James Bond references. Heartfelt has a song called Bond, where she talks about 007, I Want You My Heaven. She refers to the killing manual and says, I knew of it, but I can't escape. And then there's Monster X's Gambler music video. Juhani literally sings about a Vesper Martini, which is James Bond's favorite drink. It's a famous drink in the book and the movie Casino Royale. The James Bond inspo in that video is also pretty clear with this endless heist mission they're on. The suitcases with who knows what in them. The blackout they trigger in the city. Because as we've talked about in episodes like The Name's X, Monster X, they really each embody one of the seven sins. And Juhani's is greed, Kihyun's is lust, Iams is envy, my theories anyway, and all three are on display in this video. And in channeling James Bond style action, seems like an interesting pairing that is confusing at first, but the more you think about it makes sense. Next up, let's talk about Leon the Professional. 
Sometimes in some countries, the title is just the professional, and other times it's just Leon. The main female character in this, Mathilde, is nodded to in Twice's What is Love video, as well as the outfit Jimin from AOA wears in Get Out. Plus, IU and this comedian, Park Myunsu, made a song inspired by Leon the Professional. It was for this variety show event back in 2015. This movie was actually Natalie Portman's debut in a movie. She plays the 12-year-old girl. Looked much older in my opinion. I'm sure she was at the time, but you know what I mean. It's this French action thriller movie from 1994. And it stars this guy, Leon, who is a hitman. But he calls himself a cleaner instead. In Little Italy, in his boss's old Tony. And the other main character is Mathilde Lando. She's enrolled in the school for troubled kids. Her dad's involved with a drug ring, is wanted by some people, on some people's hit list. It's intense stuff. She's out shopping as a 12-year-old by herself, for who knows what reason, while her family ends up getting killed. So she's alone and living in the same apartment building as Leon. He allows her to stay with him. And she urges him, while they're living together, to train her. Because she wants to grow up and get revenge for her family's deaths by taking out the people who did it. She offers to, in exchange, do chores around the house and teach him how to read. Apparently, he never learned. Mathilde is definitely a character who thinks she can do these things, but she just can't. She definitely overestimates her capabilities as a little kid. And she thinks she can do all this tough stuff, but she's really, she's still just a kid. Doesn't want to take no for an answer, though. Can't sit with this rage anymore. So she grabs some of Leon's guns and sneaks out of the building, leaving out a note that just says, I'm on my way to kill Stansfield. I have to do it now. Stansfield is the one who orchestrated her family's killings. She actually gets past these DEA agents pretending to be a delivery girl. So she's like, I'm in. I'm in the building. So far, so good. Plan's working. But she's quickly then hounded and cornered. It didn't last. Long story short, Leon arrives just in time to rescue her, repeatedly, as she tries to do stuff like that. Slip out and finish the job on her own, and then she can't and he has to come save her, which he always does. Stansfield sends a group of officers to follow her to her apartment one day, and Leon is ready to help her avoid that. So he tells her where to go and where to meet him later. He tells her the plan to escape. So she runs off to safety. He dresses up as an officer to try to sneak away, but Stansfield catches him and shoots him in the back. Leon dies, but not before leaving what he calls a present in Stansfield's hands, a grenade. The movie ends with Mathilde being readmitted to that school for troubled girls she had previously basically been expelled from. She tries to get back into the groove, resumes attendance there, and she wants to give roots to something new in this symbolic way, and she takes Leon's houseplant and plants it out in her schoolyard. That's why Jimin from AOA, in the Get Out video, is carrying around a houseplant. The extended cut of this movie actually makes Mathilde much less innocent, less ignorant about plans than she's been letting on. Here's a really wild one I'm very excited to talk about. Batman Returns. This is actually kind of part of a trilogy there's, and I can never get over this, Oswald Cobblepot, who is the penguin, a villain, thrown into a sewer as a baby, at least in this version of the story, and has sought revenge ever since. So his plan now is to kill every firstborn son in Gotham City. He ended up actually 
when his parents threw him in the sewer, somehow because he killed a cat so they were scared of him and thought he'll be a danger to society if we let him stay in society. I would argue that's an indicator to spend more time hovering over him and trying to teach him to be a better person rather than let him loose, but whatever. Then he ended up in the Gotham Zoo, raised by penguins. So that's his backstory. He's now in cahoots with this corrupt millionaire, Max Shrek, a character actually named after the Shrek actor who starred in the movie Nosferatu. Shrek and the penguin are teaming up because they want to... They share the same goals. Max wants to set up this big, profitable nuclear power plant in the city. He keeps claiming to the public it will help give them more energy, when it's actually designed to drain energy out of the city. He helps the penguins' mayoral bid. Yes, you heard that. Mayoral bid. Because he thinks Penguin will help him get an in on this plan. He'll have a receptive person to his lobbying attempts and stuff. Then there is Selena Kyle, aka Catwoman, but not yet. She's a secretary for Shrek. When she uncovers what he's really up to, she figures out what he's going to do. She threatens to expose his corruption, which is why he ends up pushing her out a window. She falls to the alley below, which is full of black cats who somehow revive her, rescue her, and give her another lease on life as part cat now. That alley scene with all the cats and then the transformation into Catwoman is featured in Sunmi's music video for Tail. And it's an interesting parallel to the movie making Catwoman kind of for the male gaze, but also just a very fierce person in her own way for wanting to expose the corruption, trying to kind of mess with a damsel in distress narrative because no one saves her but the cats. No dude swings in to save her during that fall. Different ways to take it, but Sunmi's interpretation, definitely more flip damsel in distress expectation around. And now she seduces a guy. So this gang, the Red Triangle gang, is attacking Gotham City. There's a lot that happens. The ultimate short version of all of it, though, is that people are captured, killed, kidnapped. Batman is framed for one killing. The Penguin tries to make a move on Catwoman, which she rejects, so he tries to kill her, but she still survives. At one point, Catwoman actually teamed up with the Penguin because she was mad at Batman for trying to interfere, kind of take over, I guess, as she was going to expose Shrek's corruption. Keep in mind, all this time, Catwoman and Batman are feuding. Bruce Wayne, the man behind Batman, and Selina, the woman behind Catwoman, are dating. Without knowing each other are the superheroes. It's really wild. Batman ends up having this recording of Penguin's remarks insulting the people of Gotham. Publishes those comments tanking Penguin's chances in city politics. So it's time for plan B to get power. Send out the Penguin army to take over the city. But Batman finds a way to mess with that plan. The Penguins are given reverse instructions instead to go back to the lair. Batman and Penguin are arguing face to face. But Penguin ends up falling, again, into sewage water, after accidentally setting a bomb off in the zoo. This Penguin army lays the Penguin's body to rest, gives him a proper Penguin funeral of sorts, and the last image is of the bat signal that Catwoman looks up at. There were some controversies this movie was met with. Some argued it needed higher than a PG-13 rating for its violence. And some animal rights groups were really concerned about all the actual penguins in the penguin army. The crew kept reassuring them, no, 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 we're taking good care of the penguins and we're keeping them in super cold temperatures, despite the fact that Catwoman now also had to film in those temperatures. 
But then the crew somehow decided they would go with CGI bats only because they feared animal rights groups getting on their case about using real bats. So they were fine with messing with animal rights groups' concerns, or disregarding them, rather, for penguins, but not for bats. I don't know. The actual army ended up being part robots and CGI penguins and part real. There are so many really interesting facts about the effort that went into making a really unique cinematic aesthetic for this Like the director Tim Burton specifically requested that music from the film include sounds of a primal cat, there was half a million gallon tank of water for Penguin's underground lair, and Danny DeVito playing the Penguin. He actually had to get that weird mouth ooze he had by always sloshing around in his mouth this mix of mouthwash and food coloring. Really gross. If he thought he had it rough with his costume though. Nothing compared to Catwoman, who had to try out over 60 latex catsuits for $1,000 each. 60 catsuits for $1,000 each. This suit had to be worn pretty much 12 to 14 hours a day with one main break, and the bat suit was made to be much easier to go to the bathroom in and take on and off. Hmm. Also notable, Danny DeVito's makeup for the Penguin was designed by the same person who made the makeup for Edward Scissorhands another project from director Tim Burton, with some similarities to its aesthetic. This was also a huge operation, because it actually filmed on two big sound stages and used up over 50% of Warner Brothers lots. Yet they managed to, for the most part, keep it secret what was happening. So secret that actually the art department were told they had to keep their office blinds down 24-7. And cast and crew had to carry around fake IDs, IDs with a title for a fake movie on them, so people wouldn't know what they were filming. They were so secrecy obsessed that a photo of the penguin leaked to a magazine, and Warner Brothers hired a private investigator to figure out exactly who leaked it. Two more really interesting facts to me. One was that Robin, Batman's sidekick, was originally in this movie, but got scrapped because they thought he was just a worthless character. And parents were so mad about this release that their criticisms actually led to the Happy Meal promotion for the movie being pulled. I don't know why that was ever a thing for a PG-13 movie to have a Happy Meal promo, but I digress. Let's talk true crime. There are many iterations of Bonnie and Clyde, the Bonnie Parker story, the movie from 1967, just called Bonnie and Clyde, then there's the miniseries, There's actually a musical of it in Korean, made in 2013. There was the story told from the agent's perspective, the agents on the hunt for them, The Highwaymen from 2019 on Netflix. Many iterations, but truly a timeless story referenced countless times in music. Yuki has Bonnie and Clyde the video and song. Dean had a single called Bonnie and Clyde. 24K did. I could go on and on. But instead of talking about movie versions, I'm just going to tell you who the real Bonnie and Clyde were. So here's the backstory for that reference, which you've probably heard a lot, just within song lyrics too. It's used as a phrase like, a Bonnie and Clyde are a, a couple who will do or die together. A ride or die you work with, you will even commit crimes for each other. It's that level of intense. Actually, it's also kind of a, a nickname for a syndrome. Bonnie and Clyde syndrome? It's when some people actually get a bit aroused as they watch crimes unfold. If that's you, you have Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. Bonnie and Clyde were basically this these leaders of a gang who traveled the USA robbing places. Banks, stores, funeral homes, just taking stuff. 
They killed a lot of people along the way and kept evading authorities who were on their tail. They often would actually, when they kidnapped people, quickly release them, sometimes even with money to get a ride home. It really didn't seem like they were doing this for money, but for the fame and for revenge, which we'll explain more in a minute. They committed their killings and robberies during what's called the public enemy era of 1931-34. to 34. Bonnie Parker was a poet. She actually wrote a poem called The Story of Bonnie and Clyde. She was married to a criminal. A few days before she turned 16, they got married. and never really technically got divorced, but weren't really in each other's lives for long either. And he actually died while trying to escape prison in a police chase. Then there's Clyde Barrow, who grew up in a family of farmers so poor that they were saving up to live in a tent. He started getting in trouble with the law at age 17. Unpaid rental car fees, stealing turkeys, all kinds of stuff. And he did it as like a hobby. So while this young man is just doing legal, normal teen jobs, his other part-time job off the clock was committing crimes. Car theft and robberies mostly. He started a relationship with Bonnie. Accounts vary, but what seems to be the most agreed upon among historians' date they met each other is January 1930 at Clyde's friend's house. The mutual friend helped them meet each other when Clyde was 20 and Bonnie was 19. After they had started a romantic relationship, that had to get abruptly put aside as Clyde got back in jail for auto theft. This was a super, super formative experience that left Clyde with a permanent rage at the carceral system at large, and especially this East Ham prison farm. He just hated it there. He thought prisoners were treated so inhumanely. It became his life's mission to just get vengeance on that type of carceral system by thumbing his nose at the law and saying, this is what I think of how society defines crime and punishment. He tried to escape that prison with a weapon Bonnie got smuggled to him, but he was quickly caught and put back. He assaulted people while in prison. He was assaulted himself in prison and then attacked one of the perpetrators who he ended up killing. That was the first time he actually killed someone, which a different prisoner took the blame for. So he eventually did get freed, partly because of the help of his mom, who petitioned for his release. They ended up more of a gang than just a duo in 1933 in Joplin, Missouri, when Clyde's brother Buck, newly pardoned for his own crime, went to live with his wife, Bonnie, Clyde, and this one other guy. And they all partied hard, drank, had a blast living together, got complaints from neighbors, but didn't seem to really care. If I were them, which I would never be, but if I was, I would probably try to be as quiet as possible so as not to draw attention to myself, but I digress. In April, Police took cars there, not because of any of the murder or robbery or anything, but just under suspicion of bootlegging. The ensuing gunfight killed one of the detectives and later killed a constable. He died of his injuries later. The group did escape, but without much time to bring any items with. So a lot of their stuff became evidence and was taken into custody, yet somehow they evaded arrest and capture for quite a while after this. One of the things they had left behind was rolls of film super big clue about who they were and where they might be going. The police developed the film and sent it over to the Joplin Globe. That's when what they called the Barrow Gang became huge news. And that really changed the dynamics among these people. And one of them wanted out. He was like, that's it. We are now national figures. Too paranoid now. I just can't keep doing this. Just too paranoid. I have to leave this life. 
were walking on eggshells too much. I'm out, and he drove away. And then he came back a little while later to that life. He couldn't resist the allure of the life of crime, I guess. There was this one big incident that historical accounts vary about the cause, but some sort of fire or maybe a battery acid leak caused Bonnie to suffer third-degree burns. Their car was in a big accident, flipped all the way over. This is wild to me. Someone did witness it and help them. They got aid from a friendly person, then promptly left the scene to go on their next kidnapping mission, which left a sheriff and a marshal tied to a tree. The Barrow Gang rented this cabin in July, and the owner got suspicious because these renters are just weird people. They cover up their windows all the time. They pay you only in coins. All sorts of very sus stuff. So he alerted a highway patrol officer, hey, I got this shady group of people on this property. Law enforcement kind of knew that they would buy things like a certain medicine for Bonnie after that injury. So they told nearby store owners, be on the lookout for someone who matches this description and the injury description and comes in here for this medicine and these other items. When they came in for those exact items, as predicted, there was another gunfight. But it was almost like the cops brought a knife to the gunfight because Clyde used a gun way more powerful than theirs that he had stolen from the National Guard's armory. During this fight, a car horn of theirs short-circuited, and somehow this horn malfunction moment the cops interpreted as a white flag, a sign of surrender, and they got away without being chased further. This is how sick their minds were. Clyde's brother, Buck, was injured and bleeding so profusely the other started digging a grave for him right then and there. As opposed to, like, rushing up with first aid, they were like, oh my gosh, let's hurry up and dig the grave. Due to a severe wound mixed with pneumonia, he died five days later. They decided that's enough. Buck died because of us. We need to stop this and give up this life of crime. Just kidding. They went on to go rob more places and keep up their crime spree. They had another close call, then another one and another and another. They kept going even after getting shot in the legs. The police were getting closer and closer to really killing them, basically. Bonnie and Clyde were both indicted for the murder of a constable by a Dallas grand jury in November 1933. In January 1934, Clyde Barrow got in trouble with the law yet again, organizing the East Ham breakout, allowing several inmates from his former lockup to escape. After this breakout, being indicted for murder, etc., they kept up their spree through January to May. By this point, though, the team of rangers who were on the case was figuring out the pattern and the ways that Bonnie and Clyde would travel around state lines, commit a crime, then cross over the state line. And at the time, the law was cops couldn't follow a fugitive if they crossed into a different jurisdiction. So that's why they would go on borderlines between states. They were able to somehow pinpoint the exact street Bonnie and Clyde were surely going to pass through. They waited hour after hour after hour, staking out this area, and were about to give up when they showed up. They did not give them time really to surrender, and a lot of backlash went to one of them in particular for firing their first shot before they could surrender. There was no way they could have by the time he started shooting. They used up 130 rounds, and 112 of those hit that car. They found a host of weapons and 15 sets of license plates. Very unclear what they were doing with those, other than I guess just mask the identity of the car, the kind of car they were driving. They did die in this shootout. 
The public was both relieved and morbidly fascinated. So people on the unsectioned off crime scene were trying to get like souvenirs. So they would try to cut off hair to grab a finger or something to take a piece of the death scene for the iconic couple. They continued to show their devotion, basically, to this duo, with over 20,000 people showing up for Bonnie's funeral. So her own family struggled to actually get a visit in and see her actual grave up close. Bonnie and Clyde wanted to be buried next to each other, but Bonnie's family was very firmly against this, and instead, Clyde was buried with his brother Buck. Per Clive's earlier request, his grave said, gone but not forgotten. Ultimately, 20 different people were arrested for aiding and abetting Bonnie and Clyde over the years. In February 1935, they were all arrested and then found either guilty or they pled guilty in the first place. Sentences ranged from two years to one hour. And actually, two of Clyde's former colleagues got caught committing crimes back in January 34 and sentenced to death via electric chair. This other colleague, in a way, was convicted of a constable's murder in 34, and he earned parole by 1942. He left parole only to be hit by a train and die. In 1934, new federal statutes did go into effect that made bank robbery and kidnapping federal offenses. This also is less likely today, not just because of new legislation, cutting out some old loopholes, but today there's more tech, more surveillance, more ability to more quickly pinpoint a location, and more cooperation between state, local, and federal law enforcement. There's a lot to read into in this story. One is the public fascination. In fact, the news of the deaths, the day that was the top story, led to over 500,000, over half a million, newspapers being sold in Dallas alone. There's also a lot to unpack when it comes to media coverage of this gang. They actually kind of made it harder to arrest them, improve you at the probable cause and stuff in some ways. At least the trial of public opinion muddied the waters because parts were embellished for sure. But a lot of it was not exaggerated. And by working with truth and embellishments, it could make the case harder for prosecutors or defense. So it was a complicated picture because of the intense media fascination on this couple. Then there's the fact there was the fascination in the first place and the fact that Clyde wanted on his gravestone, gone but not forgotten. Like infamy was better than being forgotten. Thanks so much for tuning in and I will see you all next time for more movie talk. Bye everyone.